0: So today, we are starting on gender. And we're just having a little discussion at breakfast with um, guys who had done my courses last year and trying to say, is this the moment when this course starts going really weird? Um, And I was saying, well, wait till you get on to bioethics next semester. Um, Because this stuff we're looking at today is weird, um, but there's a lot of weird stuff out there. So I'm gonna start, as always, with um, kind of summary stuff on the board here. Uh, I usually post these onto Instagram. Last year I posted this on Instagram, and somebody then quoted it to somebody to explain gender theory positively, uh, as if this is what I was arguing. So uh, I will put some big red crosses through stuff today to make it clear what's good and bad. No, I don't think. I think you need an Instagram Sorry, account.
1: <laughs> well, there's a, picture, on there's a
0: picture. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've got them on properly, so. And I would say there's always something about the mental processing in writing it down, which is the disadvantage of me giving you those big bundles of handouts. Um, so, writing at least this. Okay, so just to summarize what, what the gender ideologists claim. So, they make a distinction between sex and gender. So, most of us growing up, we'd have used those words interchangeably. We'd have thought, well, gender's maybe a bit more technical as a term, but we wouldn't have thought of those as different things. But, in gender ideology, um, sex is male and female. It's something biological. Sometimes, the phrase will be used, something that is assigned at birth. So, gender ideology is one of these things that's evolving very fast. You know, the political correctness of the right words to use is shifting even among its advocates. So to refer to sex as biological is now by some commentators seen as a bad thing to do because that's claiming that there's something that you don't choose or whatever. So they prefer the, the word assigned. Somebody has imposed on you the notion that You, when you were born, somebody imposed this on you, assigned your sex. What a terrible thing to do to you. Um, The other thing, generally speaking, with sex is that it's fixed. So because it does have this biological dimension, it's not something fluid, changeable. broadly speaking we'd say this is about the body so male is xX or XY we're gonna note how we need to also Father. yep sorry yep you're right I've got it right okay you're right you're right I'm i copying my so- stuff wrong down here, male xy, female xx, intersex. We'll note that there are some that are neither xx nor xy, um, and that's a biological fact, not something chosen. So to say, as you sometimes hear it, popularized by, in a sense, good Catholics, everyone's either male or female, there are some intersex people for whom it's not quite true.
1: Aren't they born with a set of XX or XY? They just have extra parts and that, uh, that uh, kind of were muddled up.
0: We'll note the detail later, but actually know there are some who the chromosomes themselves have something extra. Which, not that long ago, I'd have blindly said, oh, no, that's not true. Uh, So, yes, generally speaking, most of the time when people use the word intersex, they're thinking about people that somehow developmentally have either an additional sexual organ or are lacking one. But there are some where there's something intersects even at the level of their genetics.
1: But don't but do they have they always found that uh, only one set of the organs that they have, even if that is the case? Um only one set works. As in like they can
0: I don't know is the they honest get answer
1: can't get Or they can get pregnant, but they can't get pregnant. So, so they, they
0: I've not read anybody making a universal claim that way. There's something there, generally speaking, that isn't working normally. You'd expect most of the time sterility to go with that. Um, But I've never read anywhere where that seems to be indicated as always being the case. I don't have a precise scientific answer to that question. Other, we're going to come back, when we're talking about this, the intersex condition is something we've got to keep clear and not oversimplify and say everyone, you're either male or female. There's a very small number of people for whom there's something so significantly divergent from the norm that it's not at all obvious to say, well, you're a male that's got some bits extra, or you're a female that's got some bits extra, or you're a male that's lacking something. It's kind of not clear what, but that's such a small minority, you wouldn't extrapolate the norm from that. Come back to that in a minute. Sex, male, female, gender, man, woman. or, we will note, other. Because as we've all heard by now, um, we shouldn't be binary about these things. Gender is expressed in terms of identity, in particular, self-identity, Something fluid? So last year, I felt I was a man. This year, I identify as a woman. How will I identify next year? You know, who's to say? The self-identity is a fluid thing. And the backdrop behind all of this is the notion that gender is a social construct. And whereas the body thing is what is sex, the gender thing is about mind or spirit, generally speaking. And hopefully all of that you read in the the reading for today. Now, what we're going to try and unpack in this class, this class, and our next session on on this, we've got two lectures dedicated to this. In a sense, what's the problem with this, and what's, at an apologetic level, what's the solution? So, just to be clear, the root of the problem is. What's happened here is there's a partially true distinction but a false separation. Which we could say in another way This is just a modern dualism. Dualism taken to its extreme in terms of the separation of the body and the mind. I'm going to outline what I would summarize as four points to form a Catholic rebuttal of this. One is the unity of body and soul. That's the key thing. Second, the image of God which is male and female you know how did he make them? Male and female he created them so this is the creator's plan third that we need to accept creation as something given, not just something for us to toy with, exploit, redefine. And the kind of background with all of this that is lost in gender ideology is the dignity of the body. So before we go any further, um, the material I gave you to read, all those bits of terminology from um, those gender ideologists, comments, questions, before we kind of proceed. So, you'll see in the bundle of notes I've handed out for you today, there are 24 pages. We're not going to get through all of this. Some of this is, in a sense, a kind of appendix. Um, the first half of these I want to go through today and our next lecture. The first. Three pages, I'm not going to go through line by line, they are just repackaging of the material you read summarizing what gender ideologists say in terms of their use of terms. Um, So sex and gender differentiated there. What about, any of you familiar with the kind of history of feminism and the whole notion of gender as social construct? So it was really feminists who kind of came up with this narrative of social construct, being a man, being a woman, being male, female, that this is all social construct. It's not something about what you are it's being constructed by the patriarchy or whatever. Now, the irony for the feminists is, as they are now increasingly complaining, that women have lost out with all of this gender ideology. That if a man can identify as a woman and take all of those women's jobs, women's roles, women's sporting events, um, women become the real losers that it's not far to imagine when there will never be again a woman winning an Olympics title or whatever title Um, that's not a victory for feminists Um, it's very curious that within a decade this extremist position of gender ideology has gone from being something anybody would have just kind of laughed and dismissed to being something so powerful and dominant that they can cancel even mainstream feminists. Um, so the thing social construct is big behind all of this. Now that said, um, there's obviously a truth in saying, you know, every heresy is a distortion of some truth. There's obviously a truth in saying that the identity, man, woman, is a social construct. So in every culture, in every society, the exact role a man and a woman have varies. Um, One of the examples used back home would be in the... um, industrial Revolution coal mining villages um, the woman would have run all the finances of the house the man would have been working down the coal pit he'd have come up he'd have given his wages to his wife she'd have run the finances of the house she would have given him an allowance to go to the pub um, but she ran the finances um, the, the the play the exact detail of what a man and a woman's relationship, identity, role is varies in all kinds of different cultures. So, the feminist narrative saying that's all a social construct does have an element of truth within it. We would be saying, though, even within that social construct, there's a limit to how much you can be authentic to what you are, male, female. The, the, there's a variation, but some parameters in it. Yeah.
1: So is that because I I would refer to that more as like gender roles, is, as opposed. Is that like the same thing as like the role they're expected to play is different from identity? Yeah. Is that are they trying to connect those, make those the same thing?
0: They would connect them. Um, I wanted to avoid reading all through these The first three pages I'm quoting almost entirely from Planned Parenthood, because I thought, why not go straight to the enemy, yeah, rather than me impose terminology on someone else. Um, they make the point that, what? how do we describe what identity means? Well, roles is one of the ways that's done. I don't think they'd want to be as precise as saying identity equals role, but those there's a connection there. Um, and in my reading of this stuff, there is a lack of precision on all kinds of levels, in terms of quite what's being said, except when they want to cancel somebody else, then somehow it gets very precise. Um, But social constructs, my basic point, that this is a big part of their whole narrative, and there is an element of truth in it. So when we are engaging with something, we need to be clear in our own minds, what is the truth that is being distorted? Well, the truth there is, yes, male-female roles can vary in different cultures, do vary historically, without being a perversion, an inauthentic living of male and female, man and woman. But one of the things we're going to try and unpack the next two lectures is, well, what is a variation that is authentic to still being a man and a woman, a male and a female? All familiar with the words cisgender? So our seminary, we hope, is full of cisgendered people. Yes, cisgendered, those terrible people who actually have their um, gender identity match their assigned sex at birth. Trans, um, we're on page two here. People who feel that their assigned sex is of the other gender gender from their gender identity. Non-binary. Non-binary is an umbrella term for people whose gender identity is neither solely male nor solely female. Um, Pronouns. We're all familiar with this whole business of pronouns that we're being told you have to address someone according to their pronoun. Um, One of the real risks now for any Catholic institution is that you're going to have to conform to this stuff. It's one of the reasons, you know, some seminaries are getting very concerned about taking in lay students that we could then find ourselves under a whole raft of state regulation, which just makes it impossible for us to be comfortable articulating our own stuff before explaining it to the world. So to misgender someone is to refer to someone not by the gender they choose to identify as. Okay, let's actually, in a bit of detail here, bottom section on page two, the difference between gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder. So all of this is quoting from the Mayo Clinic, as a footnote there. Um, could we go through these bullet points, uh, reading them out loud? You, the first one, Phil. Gender dysphoria is the
1: feeling of discomfort or distress that might occur to people whose gender identity differs from their sex design at birth or sex related physical characteristics. Daniel. Transgender and gender non-conforming people might experience gender dysphoria at some point in their lives, but not everyone. Some transgender and gender nonconforming people feel at ease with their bodies, either with or without medical intervention. Gender dysphoria
2: is a diagnosis link listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, a manual published by the American Psychiatric Association to diagnose mental conditions. This term is intended to be more descriptive than the one that was previously used, gender identity disorder. The term gender dysphoria focuses on one's discomfort as the problem rather than identity. The the diagnosis for gender dysphoria was created to help people get access to necessary health care and effective treatment.
0: Do you see the distinction there that's come about in the terminology? To call us a gender identity disorder implies there's a problem in the person. Whereas now they're saying it's only a problem if you're uncomfortable with it. If you're comfortable with the fact that you have a male sex body but feel, identify, as a woman in your gender, if you're comfortable with that, then there isn't a problem, they're saying. So the dysphoria is only if you feel discomfort at this mismatch. So, also within the literature you'll read, increasingly it being questioned whether surgery is an appropriate route. So maybe you should, yes, have a male body, yes, have your gender identity as a woman, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to slice up your body in surgery, because it's kind of, maybe it's fluid, And these surgeries are very difficult. Well, you can't really reverse them. They do some reversals. But once bits have been taken away, you can't put them back. You can put back something that looks similar. Um. Top of page three. Um. So I asked the question, how many genders are there? and then I footnote I, I, I a quote there, gender is a spectrum, not binary. Now, one of the objections with the word spectrum is that that is still binary in that it implies it's a line, yeah? <laughs> Rather than there being things all over that is not, not two, uh, two points and a line in between. Um, so... So even back in 2014, Facebook had 71 genders to choose from. Um, a quote there: Minnesota, um, 2.7% of the teenagers identify as transgender, genderqueer, or gender fluid. Um, Now, anyone else here find that rather terrifying, 2.7%, that's a lot? Um, and it's, at the risk of stating the obvious, they've been fed a certain ideology in the classroom. Um, if you ask a four-year-old, do you think you're a boy or a girl? Um, the four-year-old is not capable of processing that type of question, and it's a an abuse to be kind of projecting that sort of thing onto a child and then have the child dress in a way that conforms to whatever confused answer they gave. So we can expect in the decades ahead that 2.7% to increase significantly. Um, we can expect also at some stage there be being some massive lawsuits of unhappy young adults who are going to blame the people who imposed this upon them. Um, that's already happened at some level with some surgeries that have been done, because um, if you do that surgery on a teenager, the teenager isn't legally old enough to make the decision, the parents are making the decision. Yeah.
3: School district or the Board of Education or, I mean, who would, who would the lawsuit be against at
0: that point? Well and that's why you haven't really had lawsuits yet. But in the same way if you think like tobacco lawsuits, you get them they end up being put against the person who's got the most money. It's
3: so class action.
0: Um, but we you know we live in a blame culture. Th- that blame's gonna come back and there's gonna be people wanting to hit back at the sense recognizing something abusive was done to me as a child by projecting this onto me. Um, the unhappiness I now feel is very much linked with what was done to me in a child, as a child in the classroom. Um, I shouldn't have been pumped with those hormones because I was just a confused 12-year-old. Okay, let's go through this little intersect section here. So intersex is a general term used for a variety of situations in which a person born with reproductive or sexual anatomy does not fit the boxes of male or female. And sometimes doctors do surgeries on intersex babies and children to make their bodies fit binary ideas of male and female. And even before the recent kind of gender ideology there would have been a controversy about doing that because you're with a baby, it's not as clear what's fully there or not there or might develop. But the intent was to create health, create normal flourishing by making things as normal as possible. Um, but because a baby's born in some way intersex, either lacking an organ or having multiple male and female organs um. some quotes here from Planned Parenthood what they claim they say one to one in two in a hundreds that's one to two percent people born in the US are intersex that seems an incredibly high percentage you know how many of us those of us that were in state schools and you had a hundred people in your school wouldn't you have noticed wouldn't it have been a common thing to refer to? Now, to make that claim workable, they're having to define intersex um, including things that are not visible from the outside. Um, Which actually isn't as laughable as it might seem. Um, When we do embryo studies next semester in bioethics and we look at all the things that can go wrong in embryonic development. Um, There are lots of things that may be wrong in somebody, but actually are sufficiently not wrong to not kind of generally not be visible. Um, So I think for them to get this claim one to two percent is only even possibly coherent if they're including a lot of things that wouldn't be visible from the outside. Okay, some more quotations here from Planned Parenthood. There are many different ways someone can be intersex. Some intersex people have genitals or internal sex organs that fall outside the male-female categories, such as a person with both ovarian and testicular tissues. Other intersex people have combinations of chromosomes that are different than the XY, usually associated with male, and XX, usually associated with the female, like XXY. And some people are born with external genitals that fall into um, typical male-female categories, but their internal organs or hormones don't. So from the outside, the male organs there, but on the inside, the organs that match up or the hormones don't match up. Other times, someone might not know they're intersex until later in life, like when they go through puberty. Sometimes a person can live their whole life without ever discovering their intersex. It's pretty common for surgery to be done on the baby's genitals, if they're intersex. But activism by and for intersex people is growing, leading to some changes in our culture, which right now treats intersex as a medical problem instead of a natural healthy way bodies can be. That last phrase is problematic Um, natural healthy there's something not right there. Um, Now there's another sense in which you can accept your body as it is, work with it as it is but it just seems too big a claim to be saying it's natural, healthy. Um, If a child is born with only one leg, there's something that isn't healthy there. It's not unnatural, but it's also just not true to say that's healthy. I make a counter-note here, I say intersex individuals are often pointed to in order to argue that traditional male-female categories are a mistaken oversimplification. I say, however, pointing to intersex bodies roots gender issues in biological reality, which thus contradicts the whole claim of gender identity campaigners. Do you see that point? And whether you're watching, is Oprah Winfrey still on? Whatever, whatever these popularized things, I have on those level of programs heard, um, you know, somebody, some ignorant redneck being rebuked by some intelligent person referring to intersex individuals, saying it's not as simple as that. But even to refer to the intersex body is to actually say it's all rooted in the body which is actually what gender ideology is claiming is not the case. So it's really a sleight of hand for them to point to intersex individuals because even by doing that they've really conceded our point which is your identity is rooted in your body and if you have a problem in your body you do have a problem in figuring out your identity, and let's work with that problem, rather than saying there's just no connection there. Okay, top of page four, um, just to make things even more complicated, sexual orientation, this is a different thing again and here I'm quoting from somebody I read on some weird blog but expresses this opinion quite well. Sexual orientation means the genders we're attracted to. It is separate from our own gender identity. As YouTuber Brendan Jordan, a an expert, describes it, sexuality is who you go to bed with, gender identity is who you go to bed as. But since sexual orientation often gets mixed up in gender identity conversations, is what i will talking about here. So, you see what's being said there? You might have a male body identify as a woman, but feel physically attracted to, um, to men. Um, does that make you a homosexual? That's two male bodies, but you identify as a woman. So you actually feel that you are not homosexual in your orientation. You see how this gets even more bizarre? So a distinction between orientation being what gender you are attracted to. I've read um, on social media commentary um, feminists being attacked um, who are women because they won't let a man who identifies as a woman enter into a lesbian relationship yeah Um, so the orientation sexual orientation is a different question also confused but overlapping not the same problem yeah I'm not sure if I'm honest. Um, One of the things to grasp here is that there's just an awful lot of different permutations going on here. Um, And what runs through all of them is not linking your identity, not linking your behavior with your body. So in terms of orientation, I have a male body Therefore, a healthy sexual orientation is to find completion in a woman. To find my identity as a man, because I I have a male body. Um, To not view my body as a problem, but actually as the thing that indicates to me what I am, how to behave, how to engage with others. Brief word, sex change surgery. We'll come back to this in the bioethics course, but I say sex change surgery. We'll consider this again in our bioethics course. In brief, transgender persons sometimes wish to change their bodies to make it conform to how they self-identify. For example, someone with a male body, but who identifies as a woman, will seek to change her body to make it like a woman's body. I note, sex change surgery is a misnomer, it's a lie. The surgery does not actually change the body to that of another sex. It merely changes some characteristics. The XXXY chromosome that runs through every cell of the body, that cannot be changed, is not changed in the surgery. Whole and healthy sex organs are removed, which is what we call mutilation. Fake or transplanted organs are added, for example, female breast implants. And artificial hormones are required to maintain this as an ongoing entity. So you'd need to be pumped with those hormones for the rest of your life. That there's something deeply artificial going on here. Um, And I quote the catechism there, mutilation except when performed for strictly therapeutic medical reasons directly intended amputations mutilations and sterilizations performed on an innocent person are against the moral law a teaching that only makes sense if we believe the body has dignity and the body is to be kept as a whole unity um, so I remember then Cardinal Ratzinger, many years ago, making this point about sex change surgeries, that it's just not true that somebody changes their sex as a result of the surgery. Some bits change, but they don't become the other sex. And while you'll need to be careful who you articulate that to, how aggressively you say it, that is a really important apologetic thing to note to people who have bought some of this package, it's not true that he's now a woman. He's got some womanly bits, but he's not a woman. His chromosomes are still the same. His skeleton shape is still the same. But, final point about the the hormones. The hormones do make a huge difference. I can remember seeing um, on on video um, I nearly said "Yeah," a teenage girl um, going through the hormone replacement um, injections uh, in a video diary with many months in between and it just being fascinating watching her whole way of standing, um, as well as the voice, muscular build, all being changed by being pumped with the hormones. The hormones do make a big difference. Um, Now obviously she was wanting to become male as well. But the hormones do make a difference. But in her case, as in others, she would need to be pumped with those hormones artificially the rest of her life to maintain that illusion. All of this is our introductory run-through what they're saying. In terms of what they're saying, so to speak, are we... Clear and ready to move on, or clear as we 're going to get, okay, I have a little clarifying example at the bottom of page five, building on the thought that gender isn 't binary, so I say, Father James has a male body. this was his assigned sex at birth. Father Ide- James identifies as Chevy Cruz. This is now my Self identity. This is how he feels, how he expresses himself, how he dresses. If I came in with a license plate hung around my neck, this is how I express myself. This is.
2: That why like the
0: beard. <laughs> <laughs> Father James uses the personal pronoun vroom. So from now on, I want to only be referred to as. Well, vroom says, yeah, um, gender is not binary, it's a matter of identity. Because there's no limit to where this can be taken. How old is crews? Um, I'm ageless. <laughs> I, I think age is a, an imposition that someone's imposing on me. Yeah, let's move on. <laughs> That would be the answer, yeah. Do you
3: even have the license plate surgically affixed to your body? There's a thought. Only in Brazil is the license plate affixed to the car,
0: not the owner. Okay. Um, So, that's in a sense describing the problem. And as I've put it here, it's a partially true distinction. Yes, man-woman is a social construct. um, But a distinction isn't the same thing as a separation. When you do your scholastic analysis and lots of things, that's what would frequently be said. Yes, there's a distinction here, but that doesn't mean a separation. Body and soul are distinct. That doesn't mean they are separate, unrelated, but they are distinct. So page 6, I've said, which I've titled Building a Counter-Analysis. Where are we going to go to build a counter-analysis? So two pivotal points need to be made of Catholic theology is to counter gender ideology. A, gender and sex are a unity because the person is a unity, a unity of body and soul. And B, gender and sexuality is not just a matter of social construct. Masculinity and femininity are the core of our being, neither merely imposed by society, nor a matter of free choice. The male-female difference and the masculinity-femininity that accompany it exists because of sexual reproduction to further the species. So as we'll note, Augustine argued that God established the two sexes to be the means of propagating new members for the city of God. Further, evolutionary science argues that male-female exist for the sake of propagation. Um, It follows that masculinity and femininity are not mere social constructs part of the division of the sexes as built into our human nature. And I say this holds whether you follow theology, I see this as part of the plan of nature's God, or whether you follow evolutionary science, I see this as the working of nature. In both cases there must be a nature that defines us, a nature we do not choose, a nature that includes a predetermined sex and gender. And I'll note there are other theological speculations, all indicating various rationales in the mind of God. So in addition to enabling asexual reproduction, the male-female difference exists, on one hand, to reflect the image of God in humanity by relationality, which is a big part of John Paul II's analysis in the theology of the body. Another argument, it exists to enable the incarnation. So an author I'm gonna have you read for our next class, Edward Holloway. He argues, not just Augustine's analysis, male and female exist for the propagation of the species, but male and female exist because in the mind of God, God wanted a mechanism by which there would be this receptive sex, the female, to receive him into humanity. But those are theological speculations. They're not as certain as the core point, which is that gender and sexuality are united because of the body um, and soul unity. Are you with me as a general outline here of where we're going to be going? Okay, let's. page seven. Yeah?
3: The uh, major point in
0: addition to enabling asexual reproduction? OK. Sexual reproduction. Yeah. It's always good to spot those typos, so you can correct your notes there. So that's near the bottom of page six. It's a big difference. <laughs> yes. <laughs> big difference. Complete reversal of the meaning of the text. <laughs> um, The biggest point is really what I'm articulating on page seven. Um, So, this is my I've said here, Catholic rebuttal, four points. This is the first of my four points. So, the unity of body and soul versus dualism. Dualism always being that thing where the body, the soul, or maybe two other things are put in opposition to each other or rendered to be utterly unrelated. Um, Catholic answer, there is a unity of body and soul. So, going through this page. The core of gender ideology is the separation of gender identity from biological sex, gender identity from bodily identity. So this is rooted in a usually unacknowledged dualism of body and soul, body and mind. I know that dualism is both ancient and modern. So Plato wanted, to escape the, wanted the soul to escape the prison of the body. And Descartes' epistemology uh, envisaged the mind as the ghost in the machine as it came to be caricatured. And really, modernity's held to dualism ever since Descartes. You held comfortable with that as a broad summary of philosophy. Um, So this isn't just feminists in the 1960s uh, creating social constructs. There's been dualism a long, long time. Um, But here it's taking a very particular form. So, in contrast, I say, an anthropology uniting body and soul is held by Orthodox Christianity, but not exclusively so. You know, we're not the only ones saying this. So I say Aristotle, for example, held to a unified body-soul vision of the human person. I note, for example, for Aristotle, it was difficult to see how the soul could survive death, given that the body was gone. It's been a couple of years since you read philosophy, I guess. But um, the very fact that for Aristotle he struggled to explain how the soul can survive the death of the body indicates how for him the body and soul were so closely united. And following him for St. Thomas, um, St. Thomas has great difficulty explaining how the soul functions, the separated soul between the death of it, the body, and the resurrection of the body. So the soul, he says, still exists, still has uh, intellectual operations, but he's kind of bending over backwards to explain how that's possible before it gets back to a body again. And he answers that dilemma by saying, well, it's in a relationship to a body, the body it will have, even though it doesn't yet have it. So that there is a unity there, it's just not yet. Be naturalized is, in summary, his solution. But the fact he's struggling to articulate a solution is indicative of the fact that for him, following Aristotle, the body and the soul are just they go together. Okay, next point. I say the Church embraced Aristotle's hylomorphism and how it speaks of body and soul. Christopher, could you read that quote from the Catechism? unity of soul and body
3: is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body it is because of its spiritual soul that the body made of matter becomes a living human body spirits and matter in man are not two natures united but rather
0: their union forms a single nature and man though made of body and soul is a unity so you know this is Aristotle's terminology fully used by the church to articulate what the church believes not what Aristotle believes but we use his terminology Go on, the soul is distinct from the body but Michael, you read the next quote from the catechism uh, before, uh, Sorry, the church teach.
1: The church teaches that this distinction does not introduce a duality into the soul
0: and no, Further, the soul is that by which the human person is most especially in God's image but okay.
2: the human body shares in the dignity of the image of God It is his human body precisely because it is animated by a spiritual soul and as the whole human person is intended to become in the body
0: of Christ a temple of the Holy Spirit a temple of the Spirit I go on, St. Thomas thus teaches the rational soul is the substantial form of the human body The soul is identified with life, rather than just the mind. Thus it relates to the whole body, not just to the brain or some other part. Uh, If I can just pause there. Um, So, the soul, um, the soul doesn't just live in your brain. The soul is the form of the body. Um, And a lot of the time that wouldn't matter as a distinction, but in what we're thinking about here, actually becomes all the clear, all the more clear why it does matter to say the soul is the form of the body. So I was listening to a podcast, um, an atheist podcast just yesterday and it was kind of politely but dismissively referring to those Christians um, as thinking that there's a bit in the brain where the soul resides. Well that isn't what we think at all. Um, That the soul animates the whole body, including the brain, um, but not—it doesn't live in some little bit of the brain. Moving on, St. Thomas teaches that there's a unity, a composite, to quote the Catechism, the soul needs the body for knowledge and its specific intellectual operations. The soul can't think, so to speak, without all that sense data from the body. The body, conversely, needs the soul for life and ceases to be a living body without it. Then I note, as we'll come back to later, John the Second says, the body expresses and discloses the soul and there is a nuptial spousal meaning of the body. So I note, when the body and soul are separated in intellectual discourse, the soul mind dominates the body and manipulates it. That's exactly what's happening here. Sex change surgery, the mind in its delusions is imposing something on the body. Whereas when the body and soul are held as a unity, the body is then treated as mystery and respected. Okay, comments on this section and the the whole thought of the body-soul unity versus dualism. Because this is really the key thing of how our analysis is different from what's being said out there.
2: I think uh, this is a very Catholic that they're, I would say, most Protestants don't mm. necessarily think this way.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, I think they would agree if they were if they were taught something like this. But oftentimes there's not a anthropology Christian anthropology that they think about. Okay, how did how do the mind or the soul and the body come together? How do we act in the world? You know, those kind of things. Um, but I think it would be helpful in our cultural debates if we helped Protestants better articulate this, um, especially within the pro-life movement, but I don't know how, how, how much that happens.
0: I think I'd say it's increasingly in bioethics happening. Um, I remember some years ago seeing a massive thick encyclopedia of an evangelical's manual of bioethics. Um, and it was drawing on all these Catholic analyses because they don't have a terminology to use for themselves and it was somehow recognising they're defending the same conclusions as we are about dignity of life, about various things like abortion and whatever and test tube babies not being appropriate um, but they don't have a terminology of because generally speaking they've rejected philosophy they've rejected the competence of corrupt reason to be figuring things like this out. Yeah, it's an interesting point, because you, you can see I'm there trying to connect it to philosophy and, and reason, saying a good atheist can hold this without being a Christian. A good Protestant, ironically, might find it harder. Um, yeah, I think that's a good, good point. Other thoughts, anything else I'm missing here in terms of thinking the unity of body and soul in this regard? Is it kind of obvious to everyone the unity of body and soul is the issue here? That if you have a unity of body and soul then this whole separation of sex and gender is gone?
3: Would there be any, anyone who would argue that the-
0: I'm sure there are people, because generally speaking, the church doesn't use the word mind. Yeah, we use the word soul, intellect would be the word all through the summer. Um, So mind is a recent terminology and therefore less specific. Um, So you could probably find somebody wanting to make a tripartite distinction, body, soul, mind. But run with that, who knows in what direction. Is
3: that
0: very common? Hmm? It's not very common. I've not come across it as somebody wanting to make that distinction and concluding something from that distinction. But it's very common to read writers where spirit, mind, is just rather fluidly the thing that is identified with gender. scientists among us with comments on brain studies You know, just increasingly how scientists are able to say okay there's a certain thinking going on here and there's a bit of the brain that lights up when that happens um, and getting more and more specific in being able to see that which indicates that there's a connection between the body and whatever the spirit thing is that does the, the thinking in a disembodied way Which I just say, is it a less, a, another little indication of the science kind of indicating something of our narrative at the same time as modern philosophy in the popular sphere with this stuff is running all over the place. It's deep, but on another level, it's not that complicated. I think a lot of people have a grasp of that, to say to to somebody, you're not separate from your body, that your body is you, that it indicates to you what you are, that you only are gonna find fulfillment according to what you are. If you try to violate your body, you, will be violated, you will not be happy. So yes, on one level, it's tough that there's something deep and philosophical here, but I think it's of the various philosophical things we'd have to say, one of them more easy to to point to. Um, Okay, I'm not gonna complete these notes today, by far, but page eight, Moving on to the second part of my Catholic rebuttal, the image of God. So I say, the image of God, male and female, he created them. So I say, as noted in our summary of scriptural teaching on sex, so as we did the last couple lectures, I said, man exists as sexually differentiated by reason of the creator's plan. That was one of the points I was trying to articulate a number of times through the Genesis account. So not all animals are sexually differentiated, but humans are. And I quote um, William May, who we quoted, then, through their sexuality, men and women image God in the world. It's as male and female that humans are in the image of God. So differentiation complementarity, another quote, human heterosexuality is a work of the creator, that the solitude of Adam, his difference from Eve, reveals that the person in his body is a being that carries within himself a profound need of living with others in relationship. Daniel, could you read that quote from the catechism? Man
1: and woman they reflect the Creator's wisdom and goodness. And man and woman were made for each other, complementarity, as masculine and feminine.
0: So this is kind of a background theological thing, that being male and female isn't random, it's part of the Creator's plan. Being male and female images God. If we're toying with that, we're toying with something deeply problematic. Page 9 Unpacking this and I won't get through all of this before we close today. But the basic point here, made in his image as male and female, what does that mean? It means we are made for relationship. And here in a sense, I'm pulling together an aspect of John Paul II's theology of the body. So I say there's an inherent individualism in gender ideology. That we don't let society create us as social constructs. We don't let others define us. We don't let biology define us. We create ourselves. Now what does that mean? That means you are all alone. So in contrast, being made in the image of God is relational, not individualistic. The Trinity is a communion of persons. The persons of the Trinity you did Trinity last year? You did that before your pastoral year, so you don't remember it anymore, yeah? <laughs> Even longer, okay.
1: I did not a lot longer.
0: <laughs> but you do remember the thing how are the persons defined in the Trinity by their relationship? Father is Father, Son is Son. Um, by their relationship, they're constituted. St. Thomas teaches. The human person's image of God is not just a matter of essence, not just a matter of possessing intellect and will. Rather, possessing intellect and will is something that enables the human person to know and love God, or to be in relationship with Him. Articulating that more technically, firstly and chiefly, the image of the Trinity is found in the acts of the human person with my intellect and will, in knowing, and loving, in relationship. So this image of God is about relationship. You, and that's really what's gone in all of this gender ideology stuff. That you choose what you are, therefore it's utterly random how you relate to others you're therefore utterly alone in figuring that out. So the individualism of modern society gets a horrible articulation in this. And you don't need to think too hard of the confused teenager who has a male body, identifies as a woman, feels attracted to uh, girls, um, who on earth is gonna know how to relate to to that person? The boys, the girls, the m- boy locker room, the girl locker room, that it's an utterly lonely state to be in. That the relationship that constitutes you is one of the things that's been directly attacked in all of this gender ideology. Okay, so John Paul II develops this teaching on sexuality, saying, it's by the communion of persons that man becomes the image of God. Um, And then we've got two quotes there. Dave, could you read the first one? The fact that.
2: The fact that man, created as man and woman, is the image of God means not only that each of them individually is like God as a rational and free being, it also means that man and woman, created as a unity of the two in their common humanity, are called to live in a communion of love, and in this way to mirror in the world the communion of love that is in God. Through which the three persons love each other in the intimate mystery of the one divine light.
0: And Tyler, can you read the next one?
2: We can then deduce that man became the image and likeness of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons which man in woman form right in the beginning. The function of the image reflects the one who a model to reproduce its own prototype. Man becomes the image of God, not so much in the moment of the soul
0: as in the moment of. Um, no that's fine Um, and we'll pause going through the notes there so what have we looked at today we've begun to outline the problem of what gender ideology is claiming that there is a not just a distinction but a separation between your sex and your gender between whether you're male and female or man and woman Um, and we're beginning to articulate what the Catholic response is both from our own perspective, theologically, but at an apologetic level, what we're going to say. For the next class, I've given you a couple articles to read that are articulating a theological counter-narrative. It does get a bit complicated. Um, I'm wanting, rather than just me read my notes back to you on this, if we can have some discussion. When you do theology, you have arguments that are not necessarily doctrine, that are theory to try and explain doctrine, which means you can read and say that's just incoherent or doesn't make sense or, um, so I don't just want you to repeat back to me that stuff, do you think it makes sense, do you think it's coherent let's close in prayer